As I said on the previous podcast that we produced on Simon Quinton's GST presentation, I consider emotional intelligence to be one of the most uh, important skills that salespeople possess, uh, particularly in today's world. More challenging to become more emotionally intelligent when we don't have that human contact, face-to-face environment that we had pre-COVID. This podcast that we're about to go into is a much deeper dive into the topic, and it touches upon Simon's master's dissertation. Um, Here you'll learn about his exploration into different theories of emotional intelligence and begin to get more in-depth perspectives of it. It's amazing to see how over the years Simon has developed from when we first met him as a a leader of seven or eight account execs to to now being the managing director of Infor in the UK and then more recently now transferring over to Salesforce's Tableau organization as the MD of the UK operation. Um, And I'm sure a lot of this has to do with the way in which he is applying some of the emotional intelligence concepts to the way he leads and manages his people. So I hope you enjoyed the next podcast with him. So, Simon, first of all, huge thanks for taking part in this uh, sales transformation podcast. And um, I've been so looking forward, actually, to talking to you about it. you, You spoke at our GST event. Um, a number yep. of years ago now, and it it was um, fascinating to listen to you sharing your your journey then. Um, so yeah, I've been just very much looking forward to picking up with you on this one. So I wonder if we could start with just a short introduction of who you are, and where you've been, and how you've come to be the person you are but not too long on this perhaps <laughs> you know me well enough to know that this will probably take up the 45 minutes no so uh so very briefly where am i and where have i come from so simon quinton uh, i'm currently the uh, uk and ireland country manager at tableau which is part of salesforce it's a salesforce business that was acquired in 2019 Uh, Prior to that, I've been lucky enough to work for some of the leading organizations around IT and software. Uh, I've spent time with IBM, where I started off my career. I've also been lucky enough to work in some senior leadership roles with SAP uh, and Infor uh, before then moving over to to Tableau and Salesforce. In between those times, one of my greatest experiences was actually also working within the IBM partner channel, where I worked for eight years. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be part of a business that was acquired twice during that time. And I've been through successful transitions from a 17-person organization through to a 500-person organization and then eventually ending up in, a, in an 18,000-person organization. So I, I've seen business from lots of different aspects, got a huge amount of, uh, of gratitude to all of those businesses that I've worked for because they have brought me to where I am today. And, and, and to answer that question... Where am I today? I'm a, I'm a sales leader. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a business leader, a uh, strategic thinking leader who really tries to build, lead and develop the highest performing teams that I can and build environments where everybody within the business can be as successful as they can be uh, and take us from being good to, to being quite frankly great. That's my, uh, my mission in life. 
So when I when I first met you, I think you were managing a group of um, seven or eight account managers. Was that yes. right? Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> and and within an extraordinarily short amount of time, actually, I've seen your career sort of uh, sort of move upwards, and it's yes. it's been absolutely fabulous to to see that journey. I, I have to say, and moving not just from like you've mentioned earlier on, sort of sales leadership role but to a general business management lead as well um, and some pretty big responsibilities Um, but what I want to do on this um, podcast is to take you back and I I know you're going to have to dust off um, the dissertation you produced but I I think you did a fantastic um, piece of research on the topic of uh, emotional intelligence and what I'd like to do first of all is to ask you why did you choose that particular topic? Why was this a concern to you? So, wow, what a great question to start with. I think the reason why I chose the topic, and actually I think the topic really came to me rather than I went to the topic. And I'll explain what I mean by that. During the master's course that you were running and that I participated in, we went on a, on a journey and we looked at lots and lots of different aspects of management, leadership, successful selling, performance building. And one of the areas that's always interested me, even since I was a kid, was around the psychology of selling. And as I went through the journey, I I realized a couple of things. First of all, that uh, selling is a science as much as it is an art, and that there is a process that needs to be fine to get from A to B and so on through a cycle. But actually, what I was really interested in was how in a world that's changing so rapidly and in an environment where the work context that we're in is moving so rapidly, organizations are changing and accelerating, restructuring, consolidating, dividing up, uh, acquisitions, technology advancements, all of these different aspects come to play. And what really intrigued me was how is the seller, manager, leader, and and organization that I work for having to also change and adapt and do business in a different way to not only maintain the success in a world where pressure is just mounting for year on year growth and improvement, but also then extend that success and, and, and take it beyond just where we are today. And out of that came this whole theory that if we just keep doing what we're doing, we'll never change anything. And actually, for me, it really went down to emphasize around behaviors and mindset and, and core components of, of individuals. And then looking at, well, if we're starting to think about values, mindsets and behaviors, we're moving towards the idea of emotional intelligence and how that, that level of thinking can be adapted to help you be successful in the workplace. But it also uh, allowed me to start looking at myself in greater detail get to know myself better. And that was a very appealing thing for me as well. Um, And I think that really when we talk to customers and we look at customers and how they want to be engaged with, they want to have a more mature, more more emotionally intelligent relationship that's built on trust and integrity uh, as opposed to just going through a transactional process. So it was, how do we move from doing transactional business to transformational business in a successful way? And really emotional intelligence from my reading and everything else that went on popped up And I thought, you know, this is an area that I would really, really like to explore more. And in particular, and and therefore the title of my dissertation was what is the role in emotional intelligence in building high performance sales teams? 
brilliant. Thank you uh, for sharing that. One of the comments you make quite early on in your um, dissertation was around um, the pressure that sometimes put on organizations to meet sort of short term results. And I just yes. wondered, as you were writing about that, whether whether you felt you felt there was a, sometimes a paradox or a contradiction, you know, in attention, maybe that's the right word, um, between the pressures that you're under to meet the short term kind of results and performance and trying to navigate your way through the sort of emotional side of the business. So I, I don't know if you want to maybe share a few more thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's very interesting because when I look at the cultures of, of organization that, that I've worked in, um, and especially within IT and software where I've been, um, because it is fast paced, um, it is highly pressured. Uh, there is a requirement for quarterly, then monthly, then weekly reporting in KPIs. Um, there, is a, there is a paradox because ultimately, as leaders, what we're looking to do is to put in an environment where people can feel that they um, are safe, that they're valued, that they can build and forge long-term relationships with our customers. But actually, when we sometimes implement that, especially when times are hard, then the pressure to actually just go back to that level of selling, which is very transactional, it's getting money on the table, it's asking the, the questions to accelerate deals, maybe discounting heavily, you know, how many calls are you making this week? How many customers are you seeing? And going back to that very metric KPI driven way of, of, of management, uh, it does go against some of the core principles that you would want to see and you would, you would perhaps want, yeah, that you would want to see within, within a world that was much more emotionally intelligent. I think that, I think that there is definitely uh, a, a, a paradox that can be seen there. When you did your research and when you started off on this journey, uh, we didn't have the situation that we have today, you know, which is a sort of pandemic on a scale beyond yes. belief. And of course, there's, you know, the change that you alluded to earlier on, one could argue, well, it's, it's just been extraordinary. You know, it's been on a scale of a multiple of 10 or 100. Have you reflected back today on what you did a couple of years you know two years ago and sort of questioned whether or not your inquiry was still valid I'm just thinking maybe this is a question I should have asked at the end of the interview but actually <laughs> why, why don't you why don't you give it a bit of a, an answer so, so what this what this podcast has done brilliantly is as you said right at the beginning dust down my dissertation and reread it um, and I think one of the challenges that we have as managers and leaders and, and as individuals generally is not to slip back into the old way of working because it's the easiest thing to do. Habits die hard. Um, and so for me, actually, I think that the, the relevance of emotional intelligence is probably even more heightened now post or during pandemic than it was previously. Uh, certainly one of the things that I found is that we have to be much more aware of the emotional impact that this is having on our customers, on our people, uh, on our partners. And therefore, we have to start showing a lot more empathy than perhaps we did previously. We have to understand that people are in quite difficult social situations often. There are pressures that are being applied, which never existed, whether it be you know, parents having to homeschool at the same time as try and work, 
And actually, I think more so than ever, in a really positive way, actually, it's highlighted the need for leaders to be much more aware of how they are engaging with people and doing it on a basis that is much more fair, honest, trustworthy than it was before. Um, so actually, one of the one of the, the the good things, if there are many good things to come out of a pandemic, is that I think that people are much more socially aware and socially responsible than perhaps they were prior to that happening. The other thing that, that that's very interesting is going back and reading my dissertation and and looking at all of the study that I did and the results that I found. Absolutely, it's relevant today, uh, mm. and, and I think it will continue to be relevant. And I think that when I look at high-performing sales individuals and the, the, the traits, the behaviors that make those individuals up, uh, they are absolutely things that when I will go out and look to recruit top performers, I will be looking for. Not just have you hit your target, but actually how have you gone hitting your target? Does it bring recurring revenue? Does it bring trusted relationships with customers? Is the way that you go about delivering your job done within an emotionally intelligent set of attributes and if the answer to that is yes then i'm much more likely to bring somebody like that into my organization because i know the type of organization i'm trying to build well i i would absolutely agree i think that you know i think the relevance of this topic right now is is massive and um uh we are hearing uh, uh from people who talk about the way they're being treated by their directors um I'm talking about fairly senior sales leaders, mm -hmm. um, sort of using phrases like the pandemic was yesterday's news. Just get on with it. Right. You know, fairly, uh, fairly okay. hard, fairly hard. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, such uh, and probably they're they're expressing what their directors are saying to them. You know, so where does it stop? And you alluded to earlier on this topic of culture, which I'd like to come back to a bit later on, because I think you've identified a number of different important influences for, um, I suppose, getting a, a more culturally in tune organization as a key part of being able to deliver an emotional, intelligent sales management system or leadership system or whatever. Yes. Yeah, um, so we'll, we'll come on to that later on. But so thank you, um, Simon, for for um, setting the scene. Um, so I can see it's a topic, you know, it's been of huge interest to you. And like you said earlier on, it's very valid. So when you embarked on your journey, on your research journey, um, I think it, it's also interesting to know who influenced you, who influenced your thinking? Were there any books were there any research studies that you looked at that you could say had a pretty big impact on how you decided to go about your own investigation in this area yes ab absolutely there was um, I actually did an awful lot of reading because I was interested in not just emotional intelligence today and what that meant within the workplace but also the history of emotional intelligence and how it had even come about um, and so when I, when I look back at the reading that I did and the literature that I went through, actually emotional intelligence really started coming onto the scene, probably with somebody like Edward Thorndike, who I, who I read about in, in 1920. Um, and he was putting forward this idea of 
a social intelligence. And this was where really the birthplace of emotional intelligence came about. This is where people will cite as this was the starting of the kind of emotional intelligence um, movement, if you like. And he talks about putting wisdom into social context. So how do you engage? How do you, you know, how do you move in that kind of social context, but in an, but in an intelligent way? Um, and so he was almost, if you like, the starting place. And then over time, those things got adapted, but it, but it seemed to take quite a long time, actually. So, so really, there was then a book um, by Howard Gardner in 1983, um, who expanded on that by introducing areas of intrapersonal um, and interpersonal relationships. So what this did was talk about not just the external of how do you engage with others, but also how do you engage with yourself? And I found that really interesting because it kind of brought those two worlds for me together. I think sales and leadership has always been such an external teaching platform. You know, you always, whenever you go for sales training, it talks about how you communicate to others. And actually this was the first time where it really built the context for me around how do you also look at yourself and, and, and your inner mm -hmm. self? And then how do you start exploring that to make you, you know, a, a, a much better person. And I think from there, there are a number of other, other books. There are, some, there are some very famous ones. Actually, there's books and there's methods and there's assessments and there's all sorts. Um, but for me, uh, I think it was probably uh, Mayer and, and Salovey who really started to take this forward in 1990. And they, they were probably the first ones that really predicted or proposed more than predicted, but proposed this kind of new intelligence, which, which they labeled emotional intelligence. That was the first time that that word had been used. So mm. we've moved from this kind of social context into a much more emotionally intelligent context. Uh, and, and, and that was great because what that meant was there was actually a label. So people could really start investigating it, it, it at, at that point. But I think probably the most significant, and if you look across anywhere, I, I think it continues to be the most sig significant piece of writing on the subject, uh, was really in 1995, where um, Daniel Goleman wrote a, wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence, Why It Can Matter More Than IQ. And this for me was actually very fundamental in a change in the way that emotional intelligence and social context have been looked at. And what happened at that point was that he took it and he took emotional intelligence and moved it into the workplace. So instead of having this um, idea of it being something that just happens everywhere, which it always does, actually he applied it to better working practices. And really he covered five areas within that, which was self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. And basically what, what, what Goldman was saying was, if you work on each of those areas to the best that you can be, then actually you will put yourself into an emotionally intelligent state and if you can get to a place where you're exceptional at each of those, you will be the most profound kind of leader, successful person that, that you can be. And I really enjoyed that because up to that point, everything felt like theory. I'm a, I'm a businessman, so I'm in business. So everything felt like theory. And then I could really start seeing how the practical implementation of emotional intelligence practices could be used to really drive an organization forward. Following on from that, actually, in the last kind of 30 years, there hasn't really been that much progressive writing. They always seem to go back to Goldman or Mayer and Salovey. There's another, uh, uh, there's a, Baron was another 
um, set of writings, which, which I looked at in the context of how we assess. And again, those three communities between them really made up the most kind of prolific emotional intelligence writings of, of, of our time. And people have just built on it. Um, you, you know, you get people like Deirdre Coleman in 2017, who wrote in the International Journal of Sales Transformation about why, why emotional intelligence drives performance. And she was very clear in saying, you know, a critical asset in driving people forward is, is emotional intelligence. But she even then still refers back to Goldman um, for much of her thinking and much of her writing. So for me, it was, it was very much those kind of core players looking at the history as we went through and taking it from Thorndike through Gardner, through Mayer and Salovey, through Goldman and then in, in, into Coleman. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a very interesting journey. And they all take very different perspectives on emotional intelligence as well and, and how they go about measuring it, how you go about identifying it, and then how you go about using it to, uh, uh, to, to, to better improve yourself and, and others around you. We'll come back to assessment a bit later on, because I know yeah. that you did a lot of that when you started to go into the detail of your research. But um, I'd just like to, to say that I, I'm very pleased that you've mentioned Howard Gardner in yep. this journey he's someone that was quite fundamental to the research that i did around values and mindsets and he wrote that yes. great book five minds for the future which was yep. my which was my bible i suppose as i went uh, went about um the mindsets for selling okay that's brilliant and thank you i, I think the thing about emotional intelligence is everyone knows the word now but when you stood up at that GST event and you said, actually, when you want to break it down into all these categories and subheadings, you suddenly realize that it's not that fluffy, um, what's the word? Are you, you know, <laughs> fluffy, fluffy <laughs> sort of be nice to people type things and empathetic. There's a lot more to it than that. And um, I think what, I, what I'd like to do, and I just wonder whether it's when we start to talk about some of the tools that you used and what specifically you, you know, some of the things that you were beginning to assess and measure. I yeah. think that really does then uh, make it more concrete. You know, I love the way that it was broken down into subheadings and that you used some of the assessment tools to actually, you know, sort of get the data that you needed. But before we go into the tools and data, could I ask you, you know, so you had this idea, you did your literature review, you started to get a sense of the assessment methods. Now, how wide was your research? How, you know, how did you choose uh, recipients of your research? What sort of uh, approach did, did you take to get the data that you needed then to extrapolate some of your conclusions from? Yeah, um, so... It, it was quite interesting, actually, because I, I thought a lot about who do I want to go for, to for my data collection. And what I mean by that is who, who are the individuals that I want to approach? What's the context of, you know, what, the, the, what, what that should look like? What's the persona of those individuals? Um, perhaps the one thing that I, I didn't do, which I would still at some point like to have time to do, was to be able to get a much broader data set um, and due to the timing of when we were doing this, the amount of time available to do it, because um, as you know, whilst we were doing the master's degree, we were also full-time employees trying to run businesses. So trying to combine those two things. So, so actually what I did was I, I did a couple of things. I, 
I wanted to have both quantitative and qualitative data sets. And what I wanted to do was to use the quantitative data sets to have as broad a brush as I possibly could, but I didn't have the time to implement that. So bear with me and I'll, I'll get there in the end. Um, so what I actually did was I chose to take what ended up being 15 individuals who I've worked with previously across various companies that I would consider to be top performing individuals. And when I say top performing, that was based on not just hitting specific targets, that was one of the, the criteria, but it was also based on 360 feedback that they had received, perception within the business of the individuals that they are, um, and whether they were on such things as fast track, whether they're on fast track schemes at you know, SAP or Info or wherever it might be. So they were perceived or they were, they were labeled as high performing individuals. And with the quantitative research, I decided to get them to actually do an online survey. Um, it's a survey by an organization called PsychTest. Um, it's an emotional intelligence survey. And, and actually the reason why I chose that one was because, and we haven't talked about the measures that we could use. So I'm, I'm probably jumping ahead. So sorry, Phil. But um, when I looked at how AI emotional intelligence had been assessed previously, you had effectively what came out as, 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 as sort of three different models on that. Um, you had the Baron model, the Mayer and Salovey model, and then a uh, uh, way of doing it. And then you also had the, the, the Goldman way of measurement. And they, they've got, you know, they're technical, and I can talk to you more about that at some point as to how they go about measuring it. But each one of those didn't really give me the answer that I wanted, whereas the site test emotion intelligence survey um, seemed to bring in components of each of those so that it was both ability-based, um, but it was also self-reporting. And what that means is that from a self-reporting perspective, it was about putting yourself in a situation and understanding how you would react to that and making assessments and discoveries from that. And then from an ability perspective, it was, here's a situation and here are the three answers, which one do you think is the best? So it gave me two very different perspectives on an individual within one test. The other thing that it did was it allowed me to use their data set, which went a lot broader. So it, it would give me, um, information back to show me where those 15 individuals sat against others uh, across the globe. And so actually, whilst I had a small data set of 15, uh, which I was going to actually analyze the data on, it also allowed me to level set them against mm. an awful lot of others. So I kind of got bigger bang for my buck. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that, that was good about it was it was relatively inexpensive. Um, some of these uh, emotional intelligence surveys that you can do are very expensive. Uh, this one wasn't, it was online, which meant we could do it easily. Um, and so, so that's the way I went about doing it. I had four second line managers. I had four first line managers, um, and I had seven experienced sellers. Um, and that's how I made it up. I tried to also get a mix between over forties and under forties, just to give me a different profile. And I also mixed gender as well so that I could get a, a, a good, a good set across that. Then just to, just to finish that off, yeah. that was kind of getting me the quantitative piece, the qualitative yeah. piece. Then I took five of those individuals who I could see had a good spread of result. And then I did specific one-to-one -one interviews with each of those to then give me much more detail behind the answers that they gave as part of that survey. 
And that's sort of, that's very quick as to how I started to build up my, my data set to allow me to, to, uh, to, to come to some conclusions. Simon, we don't have time to go through all the different tools, but I'd like to talk about the mm. specific one that you ended up using. Yep. And I think the listener would find it really interesting to know um, some of the headings that you looked at and how they were broken down. And you, when we spoke earlier, you talked about emotional intelligence being comprised of, was it five different domains or was it six? Um, and that... Uh, and that made it more concrete for you. But I think the, the specific data set that yes. you began to look at also broke it down into headings. So I wonder if you could just share with us the kind of areas that you looked at. Yeah, absolutely. So what the, what the test enabled me to do um, across the data set was to, as you say, break it down into categories. And actually Daniel Goleman's five um, that he came up with I think are still very, very relevant. Um, however, I think we are now able to evolve that into even more of a business context. And so the, the five areas that I specifically looked at, which then broke down into another 27 subcategories, um, which we probably haven't got time to go through, um, but they covered areas such as emotional understanding, uh, which is the ability to understand and analyze emotions and solve emotional problems. Emotional management, which is the ability to take responsibility of one's own emotions. Emotional identification, perception and expression, which is the ability to characterize emotions in oneself and others. Emotional facilitation of thought, which is an ability and willingness to use feelings constructively to let them guide you. And then the last one is around ego maturity, which is the level to which a person is fully comfortable with themselves. Um, and a strong sense of self. And they were really the kind of five headline categories that I looked at. And then I was able to see how they were performant and what percentile they were at compared to others and what EI score they got out against each of those categories. And, and as I say, within that, there were then 27 other categories. But actually what they started doing was I was able to start pulling out from each of those very specifically where the highest scoring areas were for each of those categories for high performance individuals and where the lowest scoring categories were for each of those. And that started to give me a really great view of what are the general characteristics that a high performing individual has from an emotional intelligence standpoint. So I've got to ask you the question. What, what? <laughs> I'm not telling you. No. <laughs> so... So it was, it was really interesting, actually, because the two areas where everybody... So, so let me first of all say that actually coming out of the, the research, it was very clear that these individuals all had a high level of emotional intelligence. They're all over the 70th percentile. It was a score which was out of um, 155, and every single one of them was over 120. So there was, it, it was interesting to see that you can immediately, and I could immediately state that actually from top performers that I assessed using the tools and the methods and the data set that I gathered, there is a clear and compelling argument to state that there is a direct correlation between top performance and high levels of emotional intelligence. Okay, so that, that's the first statement. So that was good. Um, and then it really came down to the areas where, where, people, where people excelled. And 
Very interestingly, the two highest categories out of those five were emotional understanding and emotional management. Okay, and, and into those, really where it became apparent was that these individuals showed high levels of social insight. They were able to see what was happening, understand it, uh, and, and, and embrace it. They showed high levels of emotional integration, and that emotional integration is about embracing one's own emotions. So they were actually quite good at, at, at understanding how they felt about situations and, and, and identifying with that. Um, one of the critical things or, or key things that came out was that all of them had high level scoring around conflict management. And in a workplace, I found that very interesting, actually, because there is a lot of conflict, positive and negative, but there's a lot of conflict. And actually being able to engage with conflict in a way where you move through it and get to a successful endpoint, I, I thought that that was a really interesting characteristic to see. Emotional management was the second. And that was all around emotional selectivity. So where do they actually spend their energy, their emotional energy? And do they understand where they're spending their emotional energy? But then they saw, um, or I saw some things that I found very relevant, which were they all show um, attributes of, of striving. They all want to, to, to get better and move forward. They all showed very high levels of resilience. And in particular in sales, resilience is key, but also resilience when you think about it in the context of an ever-changing environment and also in a context where metric-driven performance is sometimes put at the forefront, having that resilience to just keep going, I think was, was, was very prolific in these individuals. And then one which I love is around adaptable social skills. So being able to move your own personality, do different behaviors um, and engage with individuals in different ways, depending on the scenario and the individual that you find yourself with, um, it was a critical factor, I think, in these, these individuals being successful. The one bit in emotional management where I'm afraid to say high performers perhaps don't excel um, is around impulse control. Uh, it turns out that we're all quite impulsive. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I'm afraid that that definitely came out. Um, and then there were some very interesting areas Problem solving came out as something that, that each of these individuals does and does well, along with having, and, and I know you'll love this one, having a positive mindset. That was really high up on the list. People who think positively generally get better results than those who don't. I think that there was a high level of contentment within each of these individuals. Contentment doesn't mean that they're not striving, but what it does mean is that actually they know where they are, they know what they're doing, and they're not gonna allow advancement to, to hinder where they go. Uh, and they had high levels of self-esteem. One of the ones that I found very interesting as well was rumination. They all showed very low levels of rumination. So well, the way that that manifested itself was that they, they, they get into a situation, they perhaps reflect on it, but they don't reflect on it to the point where actually it becomes debil uh, debilitating and, and they can't move forwards. So there are lots of other areas, but those are the really the key ones that kind of came flooding to the forefront. So, um, so just to be clear on the on rumination, that's the mm. that sort of uh, mulling things over. Is yes. it? That's just playing with thoughts. And they, yes. you said that that was not a strong score. Yes, that, that was right? a low score. That was Absolutely. a that was a low score. So that they don't do a lot score. of that. They so they tend to be that. very action more action orientated yes 
How does it connect with this topic of critical reflection? Because you're a very critical, reflective person. Yep. Um, so how do you balance the two? Or is so it? Are you, is... are you asking me for my scores? <laughs> <laughs> I'm because sure I very because high. I actually did this. Um, so so I scored I scored very highly in terms of emotional intelligence. But but actually, one of the things that did come out of it was that compared to the rest of the individuals that I assessed. I show very high levels of rumination compared to those. And, and actually there was a question which was, if that's the case, then what, what kind of, what does that mean um, for me as an individual? Because everybody else that I'm looking at doesn't have high levels of rumination. So, so kind of what's wrong with me. Um, and then I thought about the position that I'm in. And I do believe that the further up an organization you go and the more responsibility that you have, I perceive having a good level of rumination as, a, as an important factor in being able to lead, um, especially in general management roles where not everybody is in sales and actually being able to take the time to reflect on situations and really think about the outcome that's happening, why it's happening, how you got there, how you can improve it, how you can move forward. I suppose strategize more in many ways I don't perceive that as being a negative thing. I actually perceive it as being a very positive thing. Um, and you can see that the, that the individuals with higher rumination are the ones that are generally over 40 and are generally more in the senior levels, yeah. as opposed to those who are just highly effective sellers and are just going out and, you know, hitting, hitting, the, uh, hitting the ground and, and going in and, and selling to customers. So, you know, you've got to take everything with a bit of a, I'm not going to say with a pinch of salt because that would be undervaluing what, what I found, but you still have to remember that every individual is an individual and therefore some things are going to be higher. And some, what I'm looking for is how do you get that percentile performance correct? How do you understand the percentile where people sit well enough so that it actually, when I'm looking at roles to where I'm going to employ people into a business and that can pretend, depend on many factors, I know going into an interview, the type of individual that I'm looking for, how I expect them to respond and what traits I'm looking for that will mean that I will have a higher percentage chance of them turning out to be very high performing in the culture that I build. I, I think this is a very interesting aspect of what you did because it, uh, I mean, this idea of, of recruitment and bringing yeah. the sort of people you want into the business. And I think you shared at the GST event, um, that you actually built it into your recruitment process, yes. if I'm not mistaken. So how did you do that? Did you get them to do that personality test that you described earlier on? So, it... yeah, so, so the, actually no is the answer to that question. Um, because one of the things that became very apparent uh, is that the, the, the organizations that I happen to work with also build software that helps you to do this. <laughs> Can't possibly say, uh, say who, what, where, and when, because that would be biased. Um, so, so what I actually did was, and, and therefore, um, you know, whenever people are coming into the business, they do, they do do personality tests anyway. What actually was very interesting for me was how I used the qualitative information that I gathered and the questions that I asked as part of an interview process to get under the skin of answers that you might see right and that's exactly how it was with this piece of research as well the, the quantitative measures gave me a number and a percentage actually the qualitative surveys one-to-one -one surveys that I did 
gave me much more valuable insight into how these attributes manifest themselves. And that's what I'm looking for. Can you train people to become better as emotional intelligence? Or do you think people are born with a certain profile or develop it as a very early age? So that's a, a, another great question. There are definitely components of emotional intelligence that can be taught. Um, and I think that things like conflict management is a good example of that. You, you can go on a training course that can teach you how to uh, better manage those types of environments. And, 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 you know, you can get given tools and you can uh, be given assets that enable you to, to do that. Having said that, I do think that it is something that is inherently built into one's personality, probably from a very early age. You're, you're going to go one way or, or the other. I have a, I, I believe I have a particular bias towards the, uh, the, the, the emotional intelligence end of the spectrum, if you like. Um, that's the way I've always kind of, kind of been and, and thinking about it. And so I think really what, what, what happens at that stage and, and part of the output that I found from my learnings was actually I refer to this thing called um, emotional agility. So the difference between emotional intelligence and emotional agility. And, and actually, I, I came up with this kind of statement, which was that emotional agility uh, is an ability to alter one's engagement style to reflect or engage better with customers, colleagues and partners all potentially with different, differing characters, objectives and requirements, but critically done at speed and in the moment. And it's therefore, how do you work within this environment where things are changing so quickly? And actually, I think that those individuals that will thrive with the ability to do things at speed and in the moment are probably the ones where it's a lot closer to their core and therefore they're just doing it. And we're just tweaking things at that point rather than trying to educate somebody on how they specifically read an individual and then change their own characteristics to be able to get the best outcome from that situation. I think, I think that that's kind of built in, but I don't want to put everybody off. So there are definitely things that can be, can be done and lessons that can be, can, to, can be taught to make sure that, uh, you know, people are really emphasizing their emotional intelligence side of, of, of the world uh, rather than just um, rather than just their IQ side of the world. I must admit, when I read that statement, I was thinking about myself and where I would put myself in that category. And, and I'm not sure that, um, that I would put myself in that um, thinking on the spot category as, as strongly as others uh, would. And I, um, I, I found it quite a, quite a challenging comment that you made in that respect for me personally. You know, right. when, when the pandemic hit, for example, um, do you do you take stock and see what's happening around you? Not make too many decisions too quickly, but then go ahead. Or 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 do you see everything around you so clearly that you're able to make the right decision at at the moment? And um, it's interesting observing around me that there were some people who absolutely nailed doing the right thing at the right time in the moment. Yep. You know, it's not that I'm, so I'm, I was just reflecting on this. I think I'm, I'm, I'm probably wouldn't score as highly as you 
on the thinking in the moment comment that you mentioned. But um, having said that, um, I would say that um, there are times when sometimes not rushing in too quickly, uh, the rumination point that you mentioned, you know, is a, is a good thing. There's a sort of balance. We talk, we talk about reflecting on action, for action and in action, going yep. back to the masters. <laughs> it's, getting, it's getting that sort of balance right, I suppose. I think it's also, for me, there is a big piece of this that's around understanding the situation that you're in and being able to adapt the way that you engage to achieve better outcomes. So, so there are some examples. So it's not necessarily just the ability to reflect on situations to then make a decision. But for example, if I step into a boardroom, understanding very quickly the people, the personalities, yeah, yeah. what individuals are looking for, how you need to react, who's actually important within a room was a big one. And these are things that yeah. were said to me as part of the interviews. You know, How do I understand who it is within a room that you know, I know I need to focus on or not focus on? I mean, I've been in awful situations where I've walked in and I've been told, gone in as an executive sponsor, and I've been told they absolutely love us. Everything's absolutely brilliant. You know, We're going to go in and, and this will be a walk in the park. And when I walk in, I get an absolute barrage of things back. <laughs> And it's being able to, to, to not just say, yeah. I'm gonna, I came here to say something, I'm going to say it, I'm yeah, going to yeah. say it in the way I always say it, but actually be able to go, okay, hold on, we have, a, we have something else that's happening here. And being able to adapt very quickly in that context, in the moment, yeah, yeah. to be able yeah. to, to, to engage in a more effective way. And I, and I think that's a lot of what we're talking about. I mean, one of the really nice quotes that came from a senior leader when I was interviewing was you know emotional intelligence is not a soft or a nice to have skill it's a necessity and I just thought that was great because it you know it's somebody who's identified that no what we're not saying is swap everything that you've ever been taught and just be nice to people no 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 no. that's not what we're saying what we are saying is actually if we can enhance some of these skills does that mean as an overall professional you are going to be better equipped to be successful and have higher performance due to understanding and being able to control, manage, and use some of these tools and techniques that are more aligned to emotional intelligence. So Simon, you said you developed a model, um, which presumably picked up on some of the concepts that uh, you you had from Goldman and co. Yes. Um, so perhaps you could describe what your model was. I'd, I'd, absolutely, I'd love to. So it, for me, I tried to look at three areas so there's you know the individual the behavior types that they have and then and then what culture do people need to be able to thrive in and I tried to put that together so that when I went back to my business and I said this is the output of everything that I've learned I could do it in one one graphic Um, and 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 really the three critical elements and we'll start from the core it's like an onion start from the core and work outwards were right in the middle the key thing that seemed to come out through all of the data that I looked at was about having a positive mindset. And and the things that I took from that was around striving, this idea of emotional integration and and also contentment. So I think right at the core, you've got that positive mindset. Around that, I looked at things around agile behavior. So building a core around that, first of all, positive mindset, but then having an agile behavior. So that is looking at areas such as problem solving, emotional selectivity, having these adaptable social skills that you can move and manage 
having great social insight, understanding the environment that you're in, and then this idea of making sure that you had conflict management. So that was the second wrapper. And then importantly, the third wrapper that I put around everything was the driving the culture of an organization. Mm -hmm. And I think without that kind of foundation that allows people to thrive in an emotionally intelligent way, you're not going to get the best out of individuals. And within that, there are three key areas. There's the idea of trust. And I got lots and lots of feedback during my interviews that people said, you know, we have to listen to our customers. We have to listen to our people. We have to listen to everything, take it all in, reflect it back and build trust. So I think we have to have a, an environment that's based on trust. I think we have to have an environment that's built on professionalism. Professionalism was another word that came up a lot in the interviews around making sure that people business was done in the right way that showed integrity, that showed you know, attention to detail, that, that, that just was done um, in a way that customers, employees, partners are always going to hold us to a standard. And then the third thing was uh, this idea of um, empowerment. If we are going to build a culture where we're going to put emotional intelligence as part of the core set of traits and attributes that we expect to see, we have to do it by empowering people to act in that way. And we have to be respectful of that. And we have to encourage them to act in that way. And that's about empowerment. So for me, the model really was let's build the foundations through a cultural environment that has trust, empowerment, and professionalism within it. Let's build an agile behavior that allows people to understand how they act in certain scenarios, maybe manipulate the way they act in certain scenarios to drive better outcomes. And let's always do it with a positive mindset so that people are driving themselves forward and, and, and really feeling positive and excited and having a bit of fun as well with what we do. Mm. And so I wrap that together. And actually, I use that as the basis when I join organizations or I move into businesses. I use that as a basis first to assess where they are with on that spectrum and then to see how we go about building these layers so that we give people the best opportunity to, to thrive and succeed. And ultimately, as my as my dissertation says, how do we use emotional intelligence to drive high-performance sales teams? Well, Simon, I think we've probably got to the end of the interview, but I think you're living proof that it, it actually works. So I have to say thank you hugely uh, for sharing your, your research and your findings. Uh, I'm quite sure that um, the listeners of the uh, podcast will hugely appreciate it. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, will only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean, or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key values in your approach.